Before she became an autism advocate and mom of four, Shaletta Brundage was an Emmy Award-winning comedian. Need something to put a smile in your face? Laughing with Letta is sure to tickle your funny bone. Check it out, but pee first and make sure you ain't drinking nothing when Shaletta's on a roll. That way you won't have anything to clean up when the podcast is over. This morning, when I was in my prayer closet on Facebook, which I pray and watch Facebook so the Lord might not be too happy about that, I saw a post from someone who has been a distinguished guest on the show. He was here with me for our special uh, tribute to John Lewis, Dr. Yahuri Williams at St. Thomas. And um, I'm going to bring him into the discussion because I don't even think I could even describe this situation without getting angry or frustrated or upset. Dr. Williams, I'm just going to say I'm glad you're alive this morning. Thank you, Shalette. I appreciate that. Now, explain to listeners what happened um, probably about, what, 20 hours ago or so when you uh, tried to go into the place where you live. Well, I live um, in St. Paul, and I was coming into my garage, and a woman was in front of me, and because we have construction on our street and there were cars behind me, I needed to fob immediately and follow her into the garage. Um. You know, she looked at me in the rearview mirror, and I could see her waving out of her window wildly, gesticulating wildly in her car. And, of course, we're supposed to wait until the door lowers, but she would not let me get my vehicle all the way in the garage because she was kind of sitting in front of me and preventing me from doing that. So, you know, I knew something was about to happen, and she jumped out of her car and started yelling, and I rolled my window down, and she said, "Um, you followed me in here. And I held my key fob up, and I said, I live here. And then she responded, well, we're supposed to wait for the door. And I said, that's why I'm sitting here. And at that point, she got in her vehicle after making this big scene and getting herself all riled up and pulled away. What bothered me, Shaletta, is that, you know, this is happening. You know, I'm not just going to talk about George Floyd, but as I was sitting there in that moment, I'm thinking about how many African-Americans have these days that are routine up until the point you encounter some white person policing public space. And then suddenly your life goes from anything but routine to a tragedy because that person gets to escalate. And we've seen that a lot this year. We saw it with Ahmed Aubrey out for a jog in the middle of the day. Somebody sees him at a construction site, and next thing you know, he's murdered by vigilantes when he did nothing wrong. We saw it in the case of the bird watcher, the African-American bird watcher in New York City, where he calls a white woman out on her behavior, and she threatens to call the police and actually calls the police on him. And as I was sitting in my garage at 5.30 in the afternoon, having done nothing wrong, I'm going through this mental calculus of, what is this woman going to do? And I had to remind a good friend of mine this morning, we talk about George Floyd and we think about the moment we're in now. Black Lives Matter, which was started by three sisters, started in the aftermath of Trayvon Martin. And that's essentially the same dynamic. White person out policing public space, deciding who's supposed to be here, who's not supposed to be here, and then acting on it. Uh, My thought in that moment was, if she was really concerned or really fearful of me, um, why did she jump out of her car? All of the vehicles in in our um, uh, building have little orange tags on the the, uh, windshield that lets you know that the person who's driving that vehicle belongs here. My vehicle had that tag. So there was nothing that necessitated her reaction. I just thought in this moment it was really powerful given everything that's going on. And Shaletta, I also view that in the lens of Kenosha, and I said that to someone um, this morning. You know, Jacob um, 
Blake made some really powerful comments from his hospital bed about recognizing the moment we're in. And we see this when a 16-year-old boy can go to Kenosha and, and shoot at people, that these are not normal times, that people aren't behaving um, as civil, civilly as they can, and that race clouds their ju- judgment. Racism clouds their judgment. We have a systemic racism problem in this country. People don't know the experience of African-American African Americans in general. And so when you have incidents like this, I think it's important to educate and share that so people can understand the crux of the problem. I'm, I got my mouth open. I don't even know what to say because in that moment, had you lost your head, we would be remembering you fondly and you would be a hashtag. How did you Hold it together because you pay your uh, bills on time. Okay, you ain't like me. So it wasn't even like you were late on the rent. You don't pay for the parking spot. She seized the decal, uh, you know, and, and use this opportunity. Like you said, if she was really afraid, there's no way she would have run at you. If anybody should have been afraid, it should have been you because you have an irate woman charging toward you. How do you hold your composure and your countenance together and don't cuss her out? You know, Shalana, I, I had this moment where I was sitting there and I'm like, should I record her on my cell phone? Um, should I try to talk to her? But I recognize, and I did a piece on um, WCCO a couple of months ago on the talk, which, you know, I got some hate mail from some people in the Twin Cities who don't understand why African-Americans have to give their sons and daughters the talk about how to respond to the police. But the reality is it's not just how we respond to the police. It's how we respond to white people in a culture in which racism um, is a cancer. And the reality is that any white person that approaches you, if you don't um, conduct yourself with the proper uh, decor um, and you're not in control of your emotions and in control of the way that you present yourself, uh, you're simply making the case for them and whoever might else get involved because of the stereotypes they carry about black people. And that's just the reality of the world in which we live. I love Ralph Ellison's Invisible Man in the, in the opening um, passage where he talks about, um, I'm invisible simply because people refuse to see me. When they see me, they see themselves, figments of their imagination, or my, only my surroundings. And I always remember that when I am in um, encounters with people because they're not thinking about me. I'm, not, I'm, I'm subhuman to them at that point. I'm a scary black man. I'm the person they think that's going to take their purse. Uh, I'm the person they, they perceive of as being from the hood or whatever it may be. And all those things are coloring them. And I have to maintain my composure in those moments because I recognize that at the end of the day, any misstep, as you pointed out, could very well result in me becoming a hashtag. It's a shame in 2020 we have to have those conversations with our young people. So it's a shame in 2020 that that's our reality. But it's also it would be I would be remiss in my duties as a as a person of color, as a black man, as a scholar, not to call that out and to say, this is this is the problem. This is this is what it looks like when at 530 in the afternoon, this is what I'm contending with. So. You're a scholar, you're an educator. How many times are we going to have to learn this lesson? It's, it's unfortunate, Shaletta. You and I talked about this a little bit um, when we were talking about Congressman John Lewis. You know, he talked about getting good trouble and necessary trouble. You know, I, I worry sometimes about cancel culture because, you know, I would have had great satisfaction in some sense in taking cell phone video of her and posted it on social media. And then, you know, to, the, the world comes down on her and condemns her behavior. 
But yeah, because you got the license plate number, you got the picture. She could have lost her job. Then she'd be on the Today Show tomorrow crying, saying she didn't mean it. She was just trying to be safe. You know, you could have taken a totally different route. You know what I mean? But here we are talking about a situation and not a person. We could be calling out her name. You could have gotten her plate number and put it on social media and say, this is what I am dealing with. This is what African-American men all over the country are dealing with. But instead, you're using it as a teachable moment. Thank you, Shalette. And I think that's important because what we have to do, we can call for every one of these people we call out. There's a hundred that don't get it. And so we've got to find a way to educate and call those people in, figure out a way to reach those people and to, to educate them. Or we're going to be looking at replicating this problem going forward. You know, as an African-American man, you know, I experienced this in a particular way. I know um, African-American women take this in. You know, there's a double um, uh, burden that they have in dealing with circumstances like this, because there is that real concern about their safety as a woman. And then on top of it, you've got to deal with the racial terror and animosity and anxiety that comes from having somebody approach you the wrong way because you're a black woman. So, you know, when I think about this, you know, sometimes we talk about this in terms of what happens to black men. This is an assault on the black family. If something happens to me, that's my daughter's livelihood. My mom Baby, is preach. about that. Preach. You know, I, and, and our whole community is hurt by that. We, me and my husband were at a restaurant. Um, and, you know, I've got these three kids with autism. And so there was a football game or something on the TV, and, and, you know, we were there with our kids who are very well behaved. They were strapped in the little, you know, high chairs or whatever, and we were eating our French fries, minding our own business. And so somebody scored a touchdown and made a field goal or something, and everybody started clapping. Well, one of my children is very sensitive when it comes to loud noises. So we couldn't get to the noise-canceling headphones fast enough, Right to put them on her head so that she did not get to the point where, you know, she melted down. So she started crying. And this man not only cursed out my daughter, who was two at the time, he took it upon himself to kick her chair. Now, she's two. He's a grown man. And my husband is sitting there and he looks at my husband like, knock if you buck. And all I could think about when you said what you just said about the black family and if something happens to you, that's it. I thought I am pregnant. I have three children. I have two children with autism. If my husband jumps up in a Texas man, he's going to jail and I have to raise these kids by myself. Let me tell you, with my pregnant self, I jumped up between my husband and the man. I left my, I never left my kids before. I left my kids in the restaurant so that I could go outside and calm my husband down. I don't know even what was happening with my kids, but I knew in that moment, Dr. Williams, that if my husband would have did what he wanted to do, there goes our black family. He would have hurt that man for harming his daughter. He would have gone to jail and I would be left as a single parent trying to raise kids on my own. I mean, that breaks that story breaks my heart, Shaletta. But I think that, you know, I got one brother on on uh, Facebook this morning who, you know, you know, the folks who always tell you what they would have done. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. They, if I was there. Yeah. Oh. And my thing is, you know, I think Brand Nubian uh, said it best in their song when they said, you know, um, you, you want to get violent, but I'm a lover of black mothers and black mothers need sons, not children that's been killed by guns. I think they nailed it in that lyric beautifully. And that's from, you know, the, the late 80s, early 90s. 
this is a perennial problem in our community. I think back to Emmett Till's mom and what she endured and how that impacted that family. We can talk about this in the context of Trayvon Martin. We can talk about it in the context of Eric Garner or, or any number of individuals. But I like the way that you framed it, because ultimately, at the end of the day, what ends up happening is this is never just about the victim of the violence. It's always about the, the, the trauma and the pain that's inflicted on the family and, by extension, the community. And when we don't look at it that way and we don't think about these teachable moments, this is about survival for us as a community. And we can't afford to be in a space where somebody gets the best. You know, I, you, you live to fight, the, fight another day. Um, whatever was on her mind or was impacting her yesterday, I'm alive and well today and still doing my work and my family's provided for and taken care of. And that really needs to be our mentality. At the same time, we have to work uh, concretely toward a society where this is not a reality for anyone. And, you know, ultimately our people know that struggle best because this is our livelihood. It's our reality. It's our reality. Yeah, when we say Black Lives Matter, we ain't talk about no T-shirt and no face mask. We talking about our life, like my life, like my husband, my kids, my mama, my daddy, my nieces and nephews, my sisters and brothers. We're talking about our real lives, not a slogan. You know, I saw a, a white pastor who was saying that Black Lives Matter is a Marxist organization and he's calling on Christians to, uh, you know, boycott any business that support Black Lives Matter and we need to call it out. So what you're saying is I don't matter. And that's why you can call the police on me when I haven't done anything. All she had to do was look at your sticker. And if she had a question, you know, address it later. And if she was really scared, go lock yourself up in your place and close the door. And then you can call the police. But by the time y'all get there, you've been in showered and y'all having popcorn, having family movie night. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and there, there are two entrances. I always say, because we also, you know, have been conditioned to think through um, what your escape plan will be if a scenario presents itself. You know, there are two entrances to this garage. So she was really concerned. My thought was, wouldn't she have driven to the second entrance and exited if she thought I was coming after her? Nothing that she did was logical in that circumstance. And as you point out, if she had gotten out and said, hey, you know, um, these are the rules and X, Y, Z, and I'm just concerned, it would have been a very different encounter. It was the rage. Um, it was the privilege. It was the um, denial of my, my humanity in that moment and the way that she came at me, which prompted me to write that post. And then in retrospect, as I'm thinking about it today, it's exactly what you're talking about. It is the um, realization in a very real sense that, and I know you were talking about the, the piece that's in the New York Times today about the first African-American female to run for the vice presidency. It doesn't matter who we elect to office. It doesn't matter how law-abiding and conscientious we are. At the end of the day, unless you wipe away systemic racism and you get at the roots and you change people's hearts, by reprogramming their mind, giving them an education to be able to see this for what it is, which is racial prejudice, we're never going to progress beyond this. And I'm, I'm trying to tell people, listen, uh, no matter who we vote for and who gets elected, um, if we get a new president, it's not going to go away the next day. It's not going to go away after the inauguration. All these people who were racist before the election are going to be racist afterwards. Probably, you know, even more uh, hatred will be spewed if Donald Trump is not elected. And so, like you said, if this is a teachable moment, this is where we can come together and hear this story from Dr. Williams. You know, not Brother Williams, not Deacon Williams, you know, not Preacher Williams. (laughs) 
Dr. Williams, uh, you know, who we know in our community. And this is the thing. She needs to go to a get to know your neighbor situation. You know, it's like you, you I know she's seen you before. That that's see, that's what upsets me. It's kinda like when uh uh, uh Skip Gates uh was yep. arrested at his home, going into his house. The police got there and, and escalated the situation as we know that they can. Um and, and they they got angry, they took him to jail. All they had to do was look on the wall and see his picture with his wife at his wedding, or maybe the pictures of him and his mama. But you know, somebody claimed that he was breaking in. You know that Skip Gates. He's been living there for 20 years. You've been living there for 20 years. How do you not know that's your neighbor? We've got to do something about this racism in this country because it really is costing us our lives. And I think about what you said when we have to teach our children, you know, and I think what, what, it, what, you know, it's sad, but we do have to teach our boys. I think about what Trayvon Martin's mama, you know, taught him. Look, this white man accused you of stealing, baby, just take the stuff back and wait there. Call me from the store. Stay by the clerk. You know, if they tell you to get down on the ground, even if they not police, just get down on the ground. It's sad that I have to subject my son to subhuman treatment. And this is the problem, Dr. Williams. I know you got to go back to your conference. But up until he was 10, he thought everybody was doing this. He thought white kids was doing this. He thought black kids was doing this because it was just such a part of our reality. And now that he is 14, he realizes it's just him. And his white friends don't have to do it. And he is becoming more and more angry about it. Well, you know what I love about what you said, Shalette? It reminds me of Dr. King's letter from a Birmingham jail where he talks about his children and their experience with segregation and how he could see it building up in their mind, this unconscious mental map of anger. And people sometimes wonder why, you know, they talk about angry black man, angry black woman, not understanding that wounds produce narratives. And trauma, when it's inflicted on communities of color, has got to express itself in some way. Mine was on a Facebook post in frustration yesterday. But the reality is, as you point out, I'm tired of dealing with this. I'm tired of watching videos of of black and brown bodies um, subjected to brutal treatment in public spaces. Uh, It doesn't have to be as graphic um, as what happened to George Floyd for us to want to take action and recognize that any victim of this. And and again, I think um, sisters, women of color, black women are so invisible in this conversation in a way that's not healthy. Now, I have two daughters. So I worry about them in the same way I worry about, and we talk about Raynette Turner or Sandra Bland, um, you know, women of color who find themselves in a situation where um, maybe you're not getting the talk is the same way that a, a young man is. But at the end of the day, you stand to be double victimized by any violent encounter. Should it be visited on you or visited on somebody in your family or the guy you're with or the circumstances you happen to be with? Because we are a community. So I love that when you when you put it that way, to me, one of the things that, you know, um, I, I try to take some inspiration from in moments like this is the fact that you live in another day to teach. And it's very easy to cancel people right now. But we got to start calling people home and figure because, you know, the, the reality is, as you pointed out, and this is my bigger concern, it doesn't matter who wins the White House in November. At the end of the day, if we don't figure out a way to really get at the heart of this problem, to get rid of segregation in housing, education, places of public accommodation, to root it out in our criminal justice system, and to really start getting people to recognize our shared humanity, we're doomed as a society and culture anyway. 
And, and everyone should see that as an existential threat to our larger society and culture. I can't thank you enough for sharing your story. You could have kept it to yourself, told your pastor, prayed about it, and move on, especially since you ain't had no cell phone video and you ain't want to outer like I would have done instantly, Facebook <laughs> Live, that heifer. But you used it as a teachable moment, um, and so we are all better because of it. Thank you. I'm glad you're safe. I appreciate you taking time from your conference to come and chat with me. I know you were supposed to be back 10 minutes ago, but I, I think that everybody needed to hear this. Appreciate you, Shaletta. Thank you. That girl is crazy in a good way. To check out previous episodes, log on to her website, SheLettaMakesMeLaugh.com. You can also check out where she's appearing next and score cool merch.